At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Welcome to Healthcare Americana, coming to you from the Freedom Doc Studios. I am your host, Christopher Havig, CEO, co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America and a little extra global flavor. Today, we talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America and the world that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American and global healthcare. Before we get started, we have a quick message from our sponsor, Freedom Doc. Physician burnout is a killer. It is driving our best and brightest out of medicine. The only solution to burnout is to be your own boss. Easiest way to be your own boss is to join the Freedom Doc Physician Network. Freedom Doc is a unified consumer brand and will fully finance your practice so that you can enjoy a healthier lifestyle, take better care of patients, and spend more time with your family. You focus on patients, Freedom Doc focuses on your business. So if you're ready to be your own boss, visit our website, freedomdoc.care, to learn more and schedule a consultation with one of our experts, Freedom Doc Accessible Concierge Healthcare. One of my favorite topics on this show and in my professional life, especially in the concierge and direct primary care space, is talking about mental health and how we can really empower our primary care physicians to serve mental health needs for the vast majority of their patients. I always view mental health as being on a spectrum. Zero, you're the happiest, you're on cloud nine, there's no worries in the world. 100, let's say you're a danger to society and it's a really sad case that you just cannot function out there on your own. Primary care can do so much for so many people on that type of a spectrum, yet we don't even look at that as a solution to all the access problems that we have in America and really across the world. But then we say mental health and that that it's such a broad category of health needs, conditions, ideas, really. And then where do we access these type of resources? What actually helps? What can we do ourselves? Where do we need external help? There's just, it's a massive, massive subject out there. And so for today's episode, we're absolutely going to be hitting that one. Please welcome Tom Garrity, founder of PsychSafety.com. Tom, welcome to Healthcare Americana. It is a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. Now, many people would realize that during my introduction, you know, I put a little international spin on this one. So you're coming to us from Nottingham, England, a uh, beautiful area that I is on my bucket list to visit. Haven't been there, stuck to mostly the London area, um, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on what you feel about that one. But you're coming to us here, you know, across the pond. And what I love about it is that when we talk about mental health and, and in your case, you know, psychological safety, it's something that citizens across the globe are impacted by. So, you know, with that understanding, I want to talk about just a little bit of nomenclature, vocabulary, definitions, you know, psychsafety.com. What does that mean to you about, you know, this topic of psychological safety? 
Yeah, great. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. So psychological safety has kind of been a term that's, well, actually, actually it first emerged in the, in the literature in the 1960s, but it only really came to prominence, really, in the sort of past 10, 20 years. Uh, and it's defined, so it's defined by a few people, but it's defined by Amy Edmondson uh, in her book, The Fearless Organization, as a belief that one will not be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns, or mistakes. It's essentially a belief that the group you're in is safe for interpersonal risk-taking, that you can take interpersonal risks in that group, say things, ask things, without fear of some sort of negative consequence. That's what psychological safety is. Now, somebody might be hearing that and saying, well, why the hell is Chris talking about mental health all the way up and down this uh, this episode here? And to me, a lot of those things are very much linked. You're talking about stressors. You're talking about anxieties. It's this fear of screwing up and then just being completely chastised, canceled, if you will, you know, for all the, uh, the Zoomers out there. Um, as a millennial, I can now call other people Zoomers. So there we go. It's, that's fair. <laughs> but, you know, so much we see, you know, toxic work environments where people are scared to death to speak up, to put new ideas out there, to, to make a mistake. And in my mind, as a business owner, I'm like, God, I can't believe that. Like, that's such a antiquated school of thought, but obviously a very real problem in organizations across the world. Yeah, 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 exactly. And this is and this is the crucial point, particularly in healthcare. We have the so people are always going to make mistakes. It's human nature to make mistakes. We're, we're not going to perfectly execute the thing every time. Whether you know, even the most expert people in the most in the field that they're most expert in are every now and then going to slip up and do something imperfectly. And and it particularly applies in healthcare, where in different contexts, in different environments, there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of noise going on. There's other other demands on your attention, on your time, other competing priorities. And so we need to recognize that everyone's going to make mistakes. And so creating an environment where we can admit those mistakes is really important, primarily so that we can address those mistakes. We see in healthcare and in other domains, such as nuclear power and aviation and technology, if someone makes a mistake and because they're afraid of the consequences of even talking about it or suggesting that they, they made it, they, and we might hope that it's not going to turn into anything big, right? We might, it was a small mistake. Hopefully it won't, uh, it won't have a big impact. No one will notice, but then of course, maybe it does, you know, and a patient, there's a, a bad patient outcome as a result. And so we, we need to get in front of those mistakes that we make as early as possible. And that means we've got to be able to talk about them. That also means that we can put in practices and procedures and things to prevent them happening in the future. Otherwise, we're going to make the same mistakes over, over and over again, right? I love the reference to aviation industry. And we hear this a lot because so many healthcare problems um, from a patient care standpoint, accidents, you know, really um, caregiver error are relatively preventable uh, from bacterial infections to you know, the, 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 the worst case scenario, you leave a tool or a sponge in someone's body. The aviation industry in the U.S., we haven't had a major airline fatality in like three decades. And I was trying to, to pull up the, the U.K. aviation industries and, and um, couldn't exactly find the numbers I was looking for. But, you know, in, in, in Western developed countries, like every single accident is investigated. If you take a small airplane and you run it off the runway and there's damage to the plane, the National Transportation Safety Board is going to come. The FAA is going to come and say, all right, what happened here? Was this anything mechanical? And if it was mechanical, then guess what? Manufacturers on it, they're issuing 
updates and notices to everybody owning that one so they can fix it and be aware of it going forward. It doesn't exist in healthcare. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, so many of these things are human error, as with everything, car wrecks, airplane wrecks, you know, accidents. But there is just, it's like a level of accountability that just does not exist in my mind. And, you know, going back to your point, I think people are across organizations are just, they're afraid to say, ooh, yeah, that was my bad. I screwed up, especially in life and death circumstances. Exactly that. Exactly that. And, and you're absolutely right. The aviation has proven itself to be so much safer through the implementation of something called cockpit resource management or crew resource management, as it's now called. And this is it's the singularly most effective safety program that's ever been implemented globally. And that's partly because it has been adopted glo- globally by, by essentially every airline, every, every flight crew. And there are, there's loads of elements to this, but a, a significant element to CRM is sort of flattening the hierarchy, flattening the paradynamics between members of the crew. And this has to some degree been adopted in healthcare in certain aspects of healthcare and in certain teams. But, you know, you were talking about like leaving a tool in, in, a, in a patient in a, on an operating table. And you can imagine in some environments with some surgeons, there might be a nurse or an anaesthetist sitting there, the surgeon's, you know, in charge, the surgeon's top of the pile, and maybe the surgeons, you know, got decades of experience and, and they don't want to speak up to the surgeon. They don't want to challenge the surgeon's power, but they've noticed that they've done something wrong. And that takes a great deal of, of courage and psychological safety to speak up. They might not even be sure that the surgeon's done something wrong, but they think they saw something. They think they saw a mistake. Do they speak up? Do they not? Do they own the side of silence? And in CRM, you know, in aviation, they're very much trained to speak up despite those power dynamics and encourage. And, and indeed, the people with the power are encouraged to make sure that people are people feel safe to to speak up. And that when they do, when they do so, they're praised and thanked for doing so. I was gonna say it really starts at the top. Like that's a leadership yeah. quality of you go sit in the corner, take directions, or hey, I need your input because you're very much a part of this team, just like everybody else is here. And I would say, you know, in a hospital, when you have a reporting incident, there's probably more red tape and paper to fill out than there is during aviation accidents most times, like the minor stuff. And I'm like, this is nuts. So it's only like this feedback loop is purposely so convoluted where even if I wanted to speak up and felt comfortable with it because there's a patient life in the balance, I'm not even sure what to do, where to go. So how does your organization come in to reform that thinking? That's the big question, really. And I think it comes down to many, many things. And it, it might be easier to think about it. In one sense, you've got systemic challenges to speaking up. And that might be incentives, structures, frameworks, laws even. And on the other side, you've got individual behaviors or group behaviors and interactions and practices. So if, for example, if we're, if we're in an operating theater and we might not even be involved, we might just be observers. And, and, and if we see someone else speak up, but then get punished for doing so or embarrassed for doing so or humiliated for doing so. Next time the opportunity comes or the need comes for, for me to speak up, I'm going to be thinking, oh, that's that's not a safe thing for me to do. So there's that modelling and the demonstration of interpersonal safety, but there's also the the systemic and wider frameworky stuff where um, there's a good example of this back in the UK health system. There was a case a little while back uh, uh, um, a doctor was treating a patient and loads of other stuff went wrong in the ward. There were people who turned up late. Someone else didn't turn up. 
there were uh, unplanned things going on. It was all chaotic. And unfortunately, this resulted in someone missing what they should have spotted and a, and a child dying of sepsis. Now, what happened after that was that the, the doctor, in a sort of reflective session, trying to work, you know, in a session designed to learn lessons from that, uh, where doctors are encouraged to be as open as possible. In that session, later on, it turned out those those notes that were made in that session were used against this doctor uh, to prosecute her, which, of course, then has the, the, the net effect, the outcome effect of dissuading other people in your position when they see that sort of thing happening, uh, dissuading people from talking about and admitting and being candid about the mistakes and, and things that they, that, they, that they did when something goes wrong. It's their words are being helpful or used against them. And I, this is where you just point the fingers at the lawyers. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you could, you could. Yeah. There you go, guys. Here, here, we're trying to figure out, you know, go through here and, and suffer. There's a terrible tragedy that goes on. And instead of helping fix things, so this thing never happens again, it's, it's almost like an old Soviet Union mentality of you're, you're going to shoot the, you're going to shoot the messenger. Well, and you make and this is a very good point because if you look at some of the uh, some of the contributing factors to the Chernobyl disaster, which was in the Soviet Union and uh, at the time, and uh, many of the contributing factors to that disaster were were the fact that people didn't feel safe to speak up, challenge authority, ask questions, suggest a different way of doing things, and everyone had to wait for the boss to to to, to give the say so. Or you know to give a command before they were ready to act, and that resulted in the disaster itself and far more people dying than than needed to. So yeah, those sort of cultures not only create more mistakes and more incidents, but they worsen the impact of them as well. Brilliant HBO documentary. I don't even know if it's a documentary, but a brilliant HBO series uh, about that that understands it. I always laughed. I'm like, okay, so all these people are supposed to be Russian Soviets, yet everybody has British accents. What, what is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> so, that was a, once you get past that, it is an absolutely brilliant, brilliant show with with, with amazing actors telling a telling a fascinating story. I remember they, uh, you know, one of the last episodes they boiled uh, or they uh, they broke nuclear fusion. Um, down into just very simplistic terms. I was like, wow, that that was the best explanation of anything I've ever seen, let alone like actual nuclear science. Absolutely brilliant. Tom, I you know, I I want to kind of pick your brain on this a little bit. So, you know, let's approach it from a listener standpoint who's listening and saying, you know, hey, this applies to me. I I am I am that like I, I, I want to help. I can help more, but I'm afraid to speak up, I'm afraid to do it. How do I impact change? in my company as somebody who is not necessarily in a leadership standpoint. Yeah. So, so for people actually, you know, in, in practice at the front line, at the sharp end of work, we do have to recognize that some people have more power than others. And that power might be actual power, like hierarchy and having control over other people's roles, responsibilities, salaries, and things like that. Or it might be simply tenure, yeah, you might have been someone might have been with the organization a long time, or there might be other aspects of power involved. And so we can only use the power that we've got, but we can use whatever we've power whatever power we've got. And that can be, you know, we can make use of that through modeling psychologically safe behaviors, asking questions, uh, suggesting ideas, challenging ways of working in your team if necessary, where it's constructive and useful to do so. But I would say step one, you know, step one is talk about psychological safety. 
make psychological safety a safe thing to talk about. And that will start the ball rolling. Other people then might get on board and understand what the what, what you're trying to do here. You might be able to form a bit of a community around the idea, bring in some extra practices. And of course, you can um, you can try and influence up. If you are at the top, then the things that you do will have so much broader and wider impact. But everyone's got a role to play, for sure. It seems to me that could be an overall positive for any organization. Tom, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We hear back from our fantastic sponsors. And then afterwards, we're going to dive into a little bit more about the man behind the microphone here and, and figure out your journey into getting into this point right now. A word from Ren Financial. If you're a fan of the direct care model, you understand the value of getting advice from someone that's aligned with your best interests and transparent about their pricing. If you're a direct care doctor that wants the money you earn today to work as hard for you as possible so you can practice medicine on your own terms, sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? It's important to work with advisors that get paid just like you do. The advisors at Rent Financial, like direct care doctors, get paid a recurring flat fee based on the ongoing care they provide for your portfolio, and the fees are always transparent. To no surprise, Daniel Wren and his team are big advocates of the direct care model, work with some of our fantastic freedom clients, and with multiple other direct care physicians. If you are considering this model but have some questions about how this will play into your personal finances, I recommend you hop on a call with them for some clarity. They're a fantastic team and wonderful to talk to. Go to directcaremoney.com to find out more. Once again, that's directcaremoney.com to find out more about Ren Financial. Now back to our regularly regularly scheduled programming. Here we go. It's always uh, it's always fun when I start to get tongue tied. We're talking with Tom Garrity, founder of PsychSafety.com. Tom, the first half of this episode, we talked a lot about how mental health plays in workplaces and how people feel empowered about the workplaces and ultimately got to the point where it's like, you know, how do you recreate change in your workplace if you're saying, wow, I can do so much more? Or if you're a leader that says, I think my people are terrified of me and I don't like that feeling going to work every single day because it's hard to get answers and questions and how do we innovate and how do we move forward together as a team when everybody's terrified to even speak up? A lot of different things they could do from a cultural standpoint. But, you know, I'm curious from your standpoint, your journey getting here, tell us a little bit about your background and, um, you know, your credentials and and really what makes it when you walk into a boardroom to say, here's what we need to do, guys, you know, why people are listening to you? Well, good question. Good question. So my background is somewhat varied. My first degree was in ecology and, and my first job was in ecological research. And then I moved from that into technology and became th- sort of through, you know, moved up through the, through the hierarchies, ended up managing teams, managing engineering teams, software development teams, became CIO and CTO of, of a, various different firms, including small hyperscaling startups to big global financial enterprises and things. Through that journey, I, I became really passionate about creating high-performing teams and more specifically creating the conditions in which teams can thrive. What are the, what are the foundations? What are the, what are the principles underlying high-performing teams? Through that work, I, 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 I found it really fascinating. And at some point through that journey, I think around 2015, came across the term psychological safety uh, when I watched a TED talk by Amy Edmondson. That was the moment where it really felt like the light bulb lit up above my head. And I thought, this is what I've been trying to do. This is the stuff I've been trying to create. I just didn't have a name for it yet. I just didn't know, you know, I, could, I, didn't, have anything, I didn't have a hook to hang it on. 
And and that was when I began to to really espouse the idea of psychological safety, what it was and how we could do it. I started up a blog and started doing talks. And now, um, now, I, now I'm a full-time psychological safety geek. I also have an MBA and, I, and, and I'm working towards a, a master's degree in, in public health, in fact. So, um, so yeah, and so, so when, when I'm working with management teams, boardrooms and execs and, and people on the ground, operations teams and people at the front line, what makes my job interesting and what means we can help people improve is that we, I work and we work with loads of different domains. We work with teams in healthcare. We work with teams in manufacturing. We work with teams in aviation and technology and everywhere else. And because we can take the the best practices and, and, and what people are doing in in aviation and transfer that to healthcare. What we can, we can learn lessons from manufacturing and you know look at the Toyota production system and the Andon cord and implement that in healthcare teams. That's super super powerful and it's and it's super interesting just from a just from my perspective. And I think it's important to make that distinction that you know when I say hey what do you what do you tell boardrooms when you walk into this is not a topic that is just meant for the largest of corporations out there the largest of hospitals out there this is something that every single step along the you know chain of command or even the chain of communication which in my main mind the chain of communication is completely different from the chain of command but every single step along the journey there this is important for them like how are you empowering the people around you to communicate freely positively, respectfully, I think a lot of times, uh, with one another and with you so that you can all move forward. And so at the entry level, this is, a, this is a topic that is insanely valuable. And at the very top, and every single step along the way, it's very, very relevant to them. You know, we work with physicians a lot of time in solo or small group offices. And, you know, we see this where the front office person is the first and last person that a, a patient will interact with. And that's usually the person that they'll key in on their experience, but a lot of time physicians are just not necessarily discarding that person, but they're not spending enough time managing that front office person who's probably lower paid. It's an entry-level job in most places, but that chain of communication is just almost non-existent in the patient care setting and really the patient feedback setting because you have to have trust. And in my mind, without that, without a physician saying, this is the way that we this office runs and empowering that front office person, to be able to identify problems and, and process improvements, the whole thing just craters. So my point is, it doesn't matter how big or small the organization is, without these principles in place, they don't have a shot. Yeah, 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 exactly. And one of the things I like to say about psychological safety, and in fact, this isn't just me, this is Amy Edmondson and many other people. Psychological safety, particularly for people in charge, for people, for people in leadership roles or management roles, is so much about being getting comfortable being uncomfortable, getting comfortable being challenged, empowering people and encouraging people to challenge you, to raise concerns, to, to challenge the way you've done things, to suggest different ways of doing things, raise ideas and admit mistakes as well. You know, through the 20th century, through and in different industries to different degrees, the whole, you know, a lot of the management paradigm is the boss is in charge, don't challenge the boss, the boss has all the answers and don't, you know, don't raise the concerns and don't challenge them. But if you can create an environment where you welcome challenge, you welcome feedback, you welcome bad news, even, you know, the the bad news already exists. So you want to find out about it. 
it, it's it's better to hear it than not hear it. But but so often when people give us bad news, we it's very in fact it's very very difficult to to not give sort of unconscious signals that we don't want to hear it to roll our eyes, slump our shoulders, sigh, or something like that. And 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 instead, if we can respond productively, positively to hearing that and saying, okay, right, we're going to do something about this. Thank you for telling me. My point is, it's hard. It's hard for everyone. And it's probably even harder for managers who are used to not being challenged. They just don't know how to cope. They don't know what to do, right? And there's personalities that go into it too. And so there, there's so many modern day tools where I can take, I'm like, hey, Tom, give me give me, uh, you know, two minutes of your time. I can get a personality profile on you that just spells it out. Like in a management situation, if Chris is managing Tom or Tom is managing Chris, here's how you need to communicate with one another. And like those tools are so widely available. We use them all the time and it makes life just so much easier because in this day of digital communication, someone's going to look at an email. I could send the same email to 10 different people and have 10 different emotional reactions to it. There's no human, you know, you can't look at my face and how I'm reacting, this kind of stuff. Am I smiling? Am I crying? Am I, am I pissed off when I'm writing it? I just don't know. You look at some of these tools that are available out there from, you know, personality standpoint, and they're like, oh, well, this is how Chris communicates. This is a normal run-of-the-mill thing. Like, he's not mad or whatever all the way through it. But people just kind of default to their their entry setting, and it's just like, oh, okay, I'm going to throw my hands up and get pissed or whatever it is without taking a step to take a pause, take a beat, look at this and say, great, how does somebody communicate within this? And then how do I make sure that I am eliciting the best possible feedback for him as I possibly can? Tom, I'm going to give you one last question here, my friend. Say that you are the billboard king of the UK. You've got all the billboards under your control. you got time to put uh, a message up there for somebody going by at 120 kilometers an hour. What do you say on there so that they can understand it and digest it and not crash? Do you know what? One of my favorite sayings, in fact, we, we, we have stickers that say this as well, uh, is everything is an experiment. Absolutely everything we do is an experiment. The point of that is that we, we, we should learn, we do learn from everything we do, whether it's a mistake, whether it's a failure, or whether it's a, whether it's a success. Um, the outcome of work should be learning how to do it better next time, not just succeeding in the thing we're doing. It's, it's only by learning how to do it better next time that will improve and will, and will continuously improve. So change the framing of work into experiments, into opportunities to learn. It doesn't mean we're, we're going to tolerate failure any, any more than we did before. You know, we, we still want to aim high and strive for the best outcome possible. But we accept that we're not going to get it right every time. Sometimes things do go wrong. But if we learn from that, whether it succeeded or whether it failed, then we're setting ourselves up to, to, to maximize the learning, maximize the opportunity for improvement for next time we do it. Tom Garrity, founder, psychsafety.com. Tom, I wish, uh, I wish you all the best, and thanks for taking time with us uh, with the time zone change and joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thank you. Thank you very much. I loved it. That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online, healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes. Subscribe to our mailing list and visit our online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all of our episodes. Visit the shop and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced and managed by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. 
Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.